0: Welcome to Recover Strong, a podcast that will transform your recovery from an eating disorder by helping you go from theory to practice to mastery. This is your special time to learn new skills, tools, and get the inspiration you need to recover strong. Let's get started. Good morning, warriors. Time to start your day. doing? Welcome to this podcast. My name is Jessica Flint. I'm the founder and CEO of Recovery Warriors, a multimedia resource hub for all things related to eating disorder recovery. I personally recovered from an eating disorder and I'm here to inspire you to do the same. I believe recovery is not only possible, but it's worth it. That is why Recover Strong exists, to help you see and connect to the potential that lies within you to find freedom from an eating disorder. Today, we have an honest conversation on social anxiety, loneliness, and the deeper roots of food and body obsessions with the remarkable Kelly Uchima. Kelly speaks vulnerably and passionately about recovery, therapy, IBS, and sobriety. She pioneered the self-love SPO movement on Instagram as a way to rebel against the fit SPO world that fueled her eating disorder and exercise addiction. She also has a YouTube channel and podcast called Therapy Thursday, where she shares recovery stories, trials, and triumphs. I loved everywhere this conversation with Kelly went, and I hope you will too.
1: I'm so excited to be here, Jessica. First of all, you are so eloquent in the way you speak, and I want you to just be with me every second of every day to introduce me. Like, oh my gosh. Welcome. Kelly Oteema's here. I feel like I just met myself, and I'm like, wait, are you?
2: (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's
1: such a pleasure. You are wonderful.
2: Oh, you are too, and your Instagram account is so inspirational, and I really want to get the full journey to get to where you initially had this call to adventure to embark on this whole idea of recovery and self-love SPO. And it started with your background in fit SPO. So I'd kind of be curious to start when you first started your Instagram account and what was the motives and incentives that you were basing it on into that transformation that has taken you to this whole new area of self-growth.
1: Wow. Yeah. It's actually pretty amazing that you're even bringing all that up because it's so hard for me to remember almost, you know, as we transform, just like you, you've obviously evolved every second of every every day. You're almost like a different person. And it's pretty incredible to think about how we got to the point we're at and how everything we've been through is the only way that I've ended up here. I think my drive to finally find a better life really had to find a route in understanding I deserved a better life. The fact that a lifetime of struggle could be turned into like a story of strength. I really, my whole life has been really not liking the person that I am outside, but then realizing, is it the outer part or the inner parts and really realizing all these emotional struggles these mental struggles and growing up in an Asian family and just a normal family in general many people do not understand anxiety depression body image disorders eating disorders it's not a topic of conversation and even if people really do know about it is it really that fun to talk about and I think that when I realized there were inner things going on with me I was like is this supposed to be this way Like not to stigmatize a struggle, but is this how I'm supposed to live? Is every day of my life supposed to be this awful? Probably not. And the interesting thing is the reason why I started social media was to try to become fit and healthy and attractive. So now that I've turned my whole social media presence into talking about body image recovery, my beginning stages was like, I don't feel attractive. I don't feel healthy. Let me go be in fitness and have a very restrictive type of eating. And that was huge back then, and unfortunately, it's still a huge market now. But I got sucked into it, and I loved it, and I created a FISPO account and was obsessed with bodybuilding, obsessed with measuring everything I ate and dieting. And it, it's like a little cult that feels like you belong. It feels like you're achieving something. Um, but I didn't realize how much I'd been struggling with eating disorders and body image my whole life, and it got to a point where it was so bad. I hit rock bottom in college. Mm-hmm. And the and the big issue that I realize now is that the fitness community really validated my insecurities. It made me think, "Yep, you should transform. Yep, you should diet." And it made me feel like, "Oh, this is the answer. Like this is correct." But I was giving in to the inner demons rather than confronting them and realizing, "Oh, maybe those thoughts and those cognitions that I'm having, the negative thoughts." isn't true. It isn't what I should follow. Maybe I need to look at them and validate them, but move forward and find healing and a different type of way of viewing myself. But I didn't realize that I think, without the tools. And until I finally started going to therapy because my binge eating disorder, my struggles with food, my negative body image, and my horrifying depression during college, I almost turned into agoraphobia. Like I never wanted to leave my apartment. I had terrible social anxiety. I really never went anywhere or did anything. And I started to see therapists. And I was like, oh my goodness, there's names and ideas to what I'm dealing with. Oh my goodness, what is going on? I feel like I finally get it. But I understand why people don't want to go to therapy and seek treatment because it's, it can be very scary to see yourself, but I think what I tried to preach to the people who are on this journey with me, like my followers on Instagram, my subscribers on YouTube, is like, don't be afraid of yourself. This is there already. Mm-hmm. All these struggles and thoughts and feelings is genuinely a part of you and
2: I think they need to come out. There's this book by John Cabot Zinn that's called Wherever You Go, There You Are. And oh. I feel like that is so part of this journey is that you're trying to hide from that those inner demons you talk about. Now when you started therapy, do you remember any fears you had or like any holdbacks that were really like preventing you mm-hmm. from opening up?
1: The biggest thing I think in eventually pursuing yourself is don't be afraid of your behaviors, your tendencies, your genuine thoughts. It's okay to struggle. And I would try to come off to my therapist like I wasn't struggling. I would lie. I would say you doing great. And that doesn't get me anywhere. And it's getting past the shame, the idea that you should be ashamed of having these ideas and struggles and behaviors. It's you have to, when you're struggling with food in the moments you are, I remember my whole life I would run away from my own self, therefore keep doing the behavior. But when I sit with myself and go, oh, you're doing it again without that judgment? Like there was another Kelly here being like, you suck. She doesn't need to really be there. It's just me. And that's something I really had to learn is be with yourself in those moments. You can't be your own enemy.
2: And what did you do in those moments? Because a lot of people can find that the distress, kind of the tolerance is yeah. really high. So
1: was there any coping mechanisms or skills that you developed that helped?
2: I do have to give a
1: forewarning is it can be emotional and as a society, as humans, we're terrified of emotion. I mean, even me now, as many years I've gone to therapy and talking about all this stuff, I still have a hard time letting myself cry. And the most moving, beautiful moments I've ever had is when I genuinely talk to myself. And that seems like the corniest thing, and we all think it's silly and weird, but it's awesome. And it's so awesome when you're like, Kelly, I'm so sorry. And this is a conversation that I had with myself. When one time I was struggling so badly with food and wanted to run away myself from myself and totally dissociate, I just sat with myself outside on a curb. And I said, I'm really sorry that you feel so alone. I'm really sorry that you're judging your own self. And I'm sorry you feel so empty, but it's okay. I understand why you're doing this. And like, if you're going to do it, I'll sit there with you. Because if I'm gonna hate on you for doing this and I'm just bawling. I'm mean bawling crying. And I was like and I started laughing and giggling and smiling and I said, That is what I wish I'd always been able to do.
2: That's so beautiful. That's like a perfect example of turning to yourself with love and compassion. Yeah. Honoring the suffering, the emptiness, yeah. not trying to push it away, not trying to fill it.
1: Right. With food. I mean, those food, that food stuff, it, it really does coat you. It's like a little, it's like a little Pepto-Bismol, but like, really, you got acid reflux. You need to go to the doctor. Like, it's, it's it's a cute band-aid, but really, it's just a full pit. It's like, just put in a bunch of stuff, and it's really amazing when you finally connect with yourself, and I totally understand why it's so hard to do, because it's not like once you connect, it's done. It's every freaking day that you got to remember. Oh! am I connected? Probably not. Maybe we need to. Yeah. And every day
2: you have to fight the rules that you've had in place for so many years. What was that process like for you to slowly unravel all these ideas you had around really what healthy is
1: and fitness and exercise and eating? I think the worst part is that it's not even just unraveling all the past. It's everywhere you look, everywhere you turn on your phone, people in your workplace, you know, you hear random conversations. Anytime you go somewhere to eat, you're just reminded and new information comes in and people always say, how do you fight this off? You know, when I do live streams or get comments. And How do you fight this? How do you stop doing this? I always go, it's interesting how you're asking the question. You're always thinking about how to push something away. What about if you just went inside yourself and asked yourself what you can do for you? Instead of trying to push everything other, outside of you away, what do you really think? What do you really feel? Do you really feel like you need two hours of cardio? Or do you kinda already realize that maybe you don't need to do these things? It's so reactive versus just, what do I really want? And that's a really hard question to ask, and a lot of times we don't have the answers but it's okay to not have the answers. That's why you got to keep asking. I think a lot of times what we want is what we think other people might want us to do or what we've seen or the examples, what we've been taught. I don't think that most of us, including myself, even right now, often do understand what we need because it's coded with what we want, which is not really what we know. It's really unraveling that and how do you discover yourself? How do you really know what you like? Like, do you really like going to the gym? Or would you rather just meditate? Do you really want to go out uh, to this place? Would you rather do this? It's so hard to make decisions for yourself because you're afraid of being different. Also, it is scary to be different.
2: It is, it is. Uh, But that's really the most authentic way of being is is to really embrace who you are. Have you found that you've learned a lot about the ego in the process of doing
1: therapy work. Yeah. And the ego is such an interesting word because I think when it comes up, a lot of people have such a deeply adverse reaction to it. It's like, Oh, I don't have an ego. It's interesting how we think of that word. The ego is just really how everyone cares about what other people think, like what other people think about us. And that's okay to care, but you can't let that control you. And your ego also is there to protect you. Like our egos often get in the way of us being authentic because, It's really protecting us from being embarrassed or ashamed, but there's nothing wrong with feeling embarrassed or ashamed. And I've learned that just being more open and honest in all of my content has really helped other people just not be afraid to do that in their own realm. It's not so much about them listening to me and what I'm going through, what I think. I just want to open my channel to my own self and show people that. And then that I hope just pushes them to be with themselves, not like my photo or comment on my photo. I kind of want them to read it and go, oh, my turn. By sharing your story, you give someone the opportunity opportunity to know that it's not abnormal. And then um, people like Brene Brown talking about shame and vulnerability has really helped because I've never read any literature like that, especially as an academic researcher, knowing that it's not just someone preaching and writing, but there's also founded information. That was really great. And honestly, a lot of people on social media, like Kenzie Brenna, my friend Hallie, um, Body Pazzy Panda, all women that I honestly looked up to like goddesses when I first found them. And I can't believe that I'm able to speak to them like friends now. But I'd never seen people not sucking in in photos. I'd never seen people talking about bloating. I'd never seen people being proud of stretch marks and talking about the struggles with anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts. I was like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. It was just, it's brave. Really, I didn't understand how important it was to feel less alone until I finally found someone who showed me that I was less alone. And I think that loneliness stemmed from childhood. I mean, I love my parents, I love my sister, but I think none of us are really taught to have that deep loving interconnectedness. And we say, you know, I love you, and you do love your family, but, are you really deeply connected? Are you really seeing each other? Are you really communicating? Are you able to be that raw, angry self? Are you able to cry? Are you able to genuinely share joy? Are you in a specific role? I think in families, we're all specific roles. And I was that younger sister who was, you know, doing really well, doing all these things. But I was anorexic at the age of 10. And my parents really obviously saw that I was skin and both but didn't know what to do. And we kind of just got over it. I mean, I had to get over it. And my emptiness stemmed from then. I really had no friends when I was a kid. I Maybe it was my insecurity that made me socially unattractive, but I was very lonely. And food was my only friend. And my grandparents fed me a lot because they didn't really know how to show affection. So all that. Loneliness grew into my older age, and even now I struggle with loneliness. And I think that's why a lot of us are on social media. And I really wish people who s- admire people on social media didn't put us on a pedestal because we're just kind of lonely, but we have a voice and we want to help people. But we're not better; we're just different, and we're sharing it.
2: <laughs> I really think that there's a lot of people out there who are really lonely and just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and tapping and liking, and it's just if we really want to connect. Social media is a channel, but what's that that other channel the one where you're really getting the nurturing from emotions and physical standpoint?
1: Yeah, and I very much struggle with that There's so much pressure to show that you have a great life or show that you're doing well But it's honestly pressure to put cute pictures up and make sure people like them It's very unhealthy the way that media has become I love it. It's my whole world It makes me so happy, but I feel like it's transformed into a necessity that has so much attachment to your self-value at this point. It's like, do you even exist without social media? It's terrifying to me. And I'm kind of nervous about it, to tell you the truth. I don't really know what's going on with it. Let's just not only engage with it, but talk about the fact that we're on our phones. I honestly, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I've been getting like nausea from how much I am... Watching or looking at content and then I sit there I throw it down and go man I feel so lonely and I need to go outside and talk to somebody and I feel like what has happened to me And I tell people that I tell my friends now I'm gonna go. I need to like make a change I need to start going bowling I want to go see a movie tonight or or, or I want to go for a walk. like please like let's just Throw our phones in the garbage for two days, please now a lot of people
2: struggle with social anxiety You know me included like I, I think that it's very common. How do you work
1: with social anxiety? So much. And I, my whole life, I didn't know that I had social anxiety, which obviously makes it worse because you feel like something's wrong with you. you feel like nobody likes you. And it's like, why can't I leave my apartment? Like, why, why is it so hard for me to step outside to even throw away my garbage? Like, what does this mean? And I think for me... It got so much worse, obviously, when I had the eating disorder because going out to eat was obviously not an option. But the eating disorder also gave an excuse to let the social anxiety be validated. So all these things are coming into play. And really, once I freed myself more with the food, when I started realizing that my loneliness, this crippling feeling of feeling so alone, I'm perpetuating it by staying at home. So it's really allowing yourself to have the feelings, but also what is really happening? Are you the one doing it? You are in control. It's not your fault, but... What can you do to make a change because you're not happy right now? And that's such a simple question, but
2: it can be really hard to get to the answer. Like- because
1: it's intimidating to also take accountability for what's going on. You already feel so tortured. You feel like you're the victim. So then to kind of, I guess, feel like you're blaming yourself doesn't feel like a great option. Mm-hmm. And I think that cycle repeats itself until you're feeling confident enough in yourself to be brave and face yourself. Which is so important because once you get
2: entrenched in the eating disorder long enough, this isolation, like you're saying, becomes this negative feedback loop because then all of a sudden it's like, well, I can't go out now because my body's not good enough. Like once my body's here, it's always about this never – point that's not where you're at
1: right now. I love that you said that because really in the brain of someone with anxiety, the brain of someone with eating disorder is like, oh, I can go to the gym after I do this or I can go do this. I can start doing this when I feel better, when I feel more this, when I get more this, if I've eaten that, if I haven't eaten. There's so many rules you don't even realize and it's suffocating. You just, it never ends and I still do struggle with those. And when I see these rules building up, I go, it even happened to me today. I wasn't ready to quite leave my apartment for work. I was like, oh, maybe I should eat then. Maybe I should eat now. Maybe I should and I was like, oh, so we're doing it again. I decided let's eat something and keep moving. Yeah,
2: let's just nourish, get some food in my system so I can think clearly.
1: Yeah, and you really do have to intersect what you're comfortable with, and that's the biggest struggle is, I'm comfortable with dysfunction. We're all comfortable with the rules. We're comfortable with the box that we've created. And doing the best thing for yourself often destroys that box and lights it on fire. And you're going, I need my box. You don't need the box. kind of want the box.
2: Yeah, your brain has little neurotransmitters and that kind of fire when you get the box. But it's just about rewiring it until it's something that's going to fire on something more positive.
1: Yeah, wow. That blows my mind every time. Blows my mind exactly right that we have the power to shape our mind literally so much going on in there even now you talking about it makes me go man I really need to pay attention more because this is like really teaching me stuff it's like as much as you and I are self-aware or try to be it's like oh man I have not been paying attention
2: you bring up such a good point because do you I mean do you find self-awareness is this place that you just get to and you're like I'm ultra self-aware like do you feel like it's always a practice always something that you're gaining more insight around
1: I believe that self-awareness is not possible without practice. And I feel only most self-aware when I speak out loud. I'm, obviously, other people are different. They may be able to think. They may be able to write. They may be able to paint or just deep breathe. For me, it's, I have to speak it into reality. Without speaking to, out loud to myself or to other people, I don't quite really take a breath and soak it all in. It's so difficult because you think when you're thinking things that you're thinking – but they just go in and out and whirl away, I think. That's a really good point. That can be yeah. so fast when you, when you
2: actually speak it, you're slowing down to say, what exact sound bite do I wanna like, really get out of
1: this? And slowing down is terrifying when you're a type A perfectionist person who also has a history of all these thoughts and things, you have a million things going on. Slowing down feels almost like a failure sometimes when really it's the only time I've ever gained anything. The scariest thing about realizing like, why you have these struggles or why you have these uh, disorders, anxiety, A lot of it stems from your childhood. A lot of it stems from when you were younger. And honestly, a lot of trauma from my childhood, like my relationship with my mom, my relationship with my dad, my relationship with food, with my sister, all these things that you find to be so unimportant and so irrelevant. You'll sit in your first therapy session and go, I don't want to talk about my dad. I want to talk about the food. And if that was the big tunnel, I was like, that is irrelevant. I don't want to talk about that. The one thing you really don't want to talk about might just be the key to everything.
2: I'm so happy you answered it that way. I mean, I really think I I personally feel the same. And so the the work then around getting deep into the early childhood years and forgiveness is a word that comes to mind. What has forgiveness been like for you and how have you brought the insights that you gained through therapy to your relationship with your family? Once again, not a fairy
1: tale. Um, My parents and I have never been closer, but since I started therapy, we had the biggest blow-ups of all time in our family, like screen Mm -hmm. matches not talking for weeks and months at a time, thinking that the relationship's over, thinking that you hate each other. You have to blow up. It's like a volcano. It needs to erupt and actually completely blow the frick up to then settle down and find closeness and flow again. Like, Mm -hmm. they're, they're all bubbling underneath all this stuff, all these things. And including them, like your parents are just humans. They also have their own struggles. They have their own feelings about you. You got to open up that conversation and heal those things. And it was awful. It was terrible. And I was terrified to finally let out my rage or let out my thoughts about them, but they needed to tell me things too. They needed to hear it. And you have to put effort in. And that's what's scary, too, is people don't want to deal with, like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Oh, that that puts me in a bad mood. You cannot move forward in a relationship without being able to weather all that storm. And it's, like, the best thing that's ever happened. But, I mean, it's been three years in the process to get to this amazing closeness. And the best part is if anyone ever really wants, like, oh, was it worth it? I'll let you know. It's
2: worthwhile. No, it's really powerful work to, to do that and to dig in deep. And like you're saying, there needs to be, uh, both parties really need to be into it. And I think a lot of people then can have trouble if their family's not willing to go that distance. They're not willing. My parents to- hated me going to therapy. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. for them, it's like exposing things that, hey, let's keep that under wrap.
1: Oh, especially in Asian family. My dad is Japanese and the whole stoic. No, nothing. You know, it's, it's been very upheld in our family to never have issues. And now when he talks and he's just spilling up feelings I'm like, oh my goodness. It's incredible. I mean, it just takes one person to help show that it's okay. Yeah. It's okay to be vulnerable. And he actually said that the other day. I can't believe he did. I was like, Dad has already said it's okay to be vulnerable. Yeah, he said that vulnerability really saved us. Oh, Tima. I really was shook.
2: That's awesome. But it's so beautiful. Like this could be a movie. I'm just seeing like the trailer now, you know, and just like coming in and then like being able to really- Asian revelation. (laughs) And just read this, this message and how it can really impact a family getting closer to the emotional wounds, the core, like all of that stuff being said allows so much more freedom to come in the relationships and growth.
1: Well, it sounds like you've experienced some similar thing. I mean, I feel like whether it's just your internal healing with your relationship with them.
2: Forgiveness has been, has been really huge. My story is a bit different, but it's been beautiful to forgive and to continue that path and look at them as, as someone who's suffering as well. Someone who feels that they let you down mm-hmm. and that you've let them down. You know, we're all, we're humans. We're all trying to do the best we can given where we're at.
1: I'm so happy for you. That's I'm so beautiful.
2: Forgiveness, families. Okay, but this is, friends, so this is the treasure. Like I, I yeah. agree that This is a major treasure that you can get from it. And then just having a deeper level of love for the people in your life.
1: The surprising part of my journey is that that, this is not what I was seeking at all. I really wanted to be healed of an eating disorder. I wanted to stop struggling. And there's so many things that I've gained from my journey with my therapist in that room and learning. There's so much more than you are thinking and ready for. And there's so much more healing to be had. And it's not about the food. It's not about your body. It's so much deep in your psyche, in your heart. And it's the corniest thing ever to hear if you don't get it. I remember sitting in my first five sessions being like, what the, f-? like, this girl does not know what she's saying. You know, I remember that because I, I've never dug deep in my
2: whole life. Yeah. Well, if you're always thinking it's just the body and the food. Yeah. It's so superficial, right? Like the iceberg, mm-hmm. that's just the tip of it. What yeah. would you say are uh, some key things that you've gotten from therapy? I know there's probably so many, but what are some things that you were to tell Kelly when you first entered into her office?
1: you're going to learn how to stop judging yourself and that judgment that you, you don't understand that you judge yourself and you're going to fight her and say, no, I don't. I love myself. When you're not going to realize how much you don't know who you are. And I want you to let yourself really get to know yourself and it's okay to let go and, and crying and, and being angry and being honest with yourself is the only way you're going to get anywhere. And yeah, you're going to have to talk about dad. <laughs> but you want to know that you know the exact problem and, and there's no specific thing to focus on. There's not one thing you're going to fix. There's three billion things that you deserve to look at. Mm-hmm. That's overwhelming.
2: I always think about when you're running the system of an eating disorder and you're really focused on that like a computer, it's running all your CPUs, you know, it's taking up all your precious memory space and all these processing units. Yeah. Now when you can take that program and move it out and just have, you know, a relationship to food where you're eating three times a day or how many times you feel to be associated, what has come into your space now that would have never been able to be
1: there had you been running the eating disorder program? Everything. I did nothing when I had an eating disorder because an eating disorder is the easiest, not easiest, but for me, the easiest distraction from living your life. You could live every single day with an eating disorder and get nothing else done, and you feel exhausted because you're creating these obstacle course in your brain. Every day, you have something to do. You have, you're have going to wake up. You often weigh yourself, or you check your body. Oh, activity done. Avoiding a meal, activity done. Giving in to a meal activity done. Feeling crappy about yourself for having meal activity done. And then the same thing throughout the day until it's time to sleep. Of course you're exhausted. Of course you're upset. Of course you have no time to go out or hang out with friends or do anything interesting or fun because you're busy. Yeah. no, really, and then
2: just, it goes, I just find deeper and deeper and deeper. The more you isolate and make that your
1: routine. You're getting something done though. You're filling your pool of loneliness with more loneliness.
2: (laughs) And you're allowing the harder to feel emotions and pains and wounds
1: to be numb. Oh, they have no space. You have no space for love. You have no space for happy feelings. There's no option. And that's why depression coincides so perfectly with eating disorders because there's no space to feel anything. Mm -hmm. And you don't think that it's possible to be happy because when's the last time you had a happy emotion? When's the last time you've been stimulated by something? It doesn't make sense and that numbness becomes very normal and it's scary to feel an emotion and when you trigger that emotion you're terrified by it whether it's crying or happy feelings. Yeah. You'd rather just be numb because you get it. You have a handle on it and you're in control. Sitting in failure, sitting in disappointment in myself was the best way for me to feel like it was okay to engage with food the way I did mm-hmm. validated it. It's like, I need this. I need this. I'm going to do it. And it never allowed me to heal that relationship with food for about 12 years because my feelings of self pity and self hatred, was an enabler to use food the way that I did. And I felt like I deserved it. I remember it was very hard to let go of my mechanisms with food because I told my therapist I need it. I don't know what else to do. I, nothing gives me that feeling. So I went home and I do the thing. Food feels like your only friend. And food had been my best friend for my whole life. And I needed to validate that relationship, though. I couldn't just shun her. I couldn't shun this person who needed that food so badly. It's a part of you. But how do you move forward?
2: Now, what did you do with exercise? So we talked about food, but exercise, it yeah. sounds like you were really into, like, the Fitspo community and, and all your exercise routines. What, what did that look like for you to then kind of get to a more neutral place with exercise?
1: I remember I read something that someone posted on social media, so that is one really, really good thing about social media. It was not making food and exercise transactional. Okay, and that blew my mind. And I actually only read that about, like, maybe a year ago when I was already kind of into recovery. But the way it was put into words, was, oh, my God, that is true. I think an obsession with fitness often is a transaction for the way, like, you consume food. You are taught a lot of the time that it means it must go out. And that is the basis of food, though, which is a beautiful thing is you do need energy to move, but you don't have to move to deserve the energy. And that's the hard part is we always think that an input must mean you always have to keep pushing back, pushing back. And I was so obsessed with working out to burn things away because I was so terrified in this fat phobic society of my body changing as a result for just consuming something to give me energy. It really, the world and diet culture made me so petrified of what will happen to me? What's going to happen to my body? I remember living in that constant narrative of fear. I really was like, I don't want that to happen to me. And I don't want people to ever fear of something, even if it did happen to you. What does that mean? Your body is just a vessel for everything else inside of you. Like, it's okay if it changes. And in fact, that means you're alive and moving and like life is fluid. So what? But it's really hard to believe that and be okay with that until you like practice it. And it's still hard for me. Everyone struggles with body image, even if you're the most self-loving human in the entire world. I assume that there's a percentage that's always going to be concerned.
2: I think so. I think that's a reality. And I think, I mean, that doesn't really get talked too much about in the body positive community because it's really trying to up like the idea around body positivity. And then it goes to the
1: extreme where it it isolates the fact that you still have feelings and insecurities. Mm -hmm. You're you're not going to wake up every day and be like, all right, guys, I'm ready. And I feel great. Yeah you know, that you wake up feeling uncomfortable in your skin, uncomfortable with your body, if you're constipated, if you ate something you're allergic to, if you had a fun day with your friends and ate a lot of something, it does make you feel a certain type of way. And it's okay to feel those things, but how do you let yourself not fall into the pit? How do you still go outside and feel okay with moving around, walking around, going to your work, talking to people? How do you let yourself live also while feeling genuinely like shitty about your body? It's possible. And just letting yourself have the feelings helps you move through it. It's not giving those feelings so much power that they take over you. But it's like, oh, I see you. Okay, you can come with me today. But I'm still going to be myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm still going to go out. I'm still going to do me the reason why people really want to keep those negative feelings so high in regard and strong is because maybe it's scary to abandon those feelings. Maybe you're scared that it's not going to force you to exercise a ton. Maybe you're afraid of letting go and still feeling good about yourself because it might not motivate you to do all the things that you think you're supposed to do to fix yourself. You always think you're supposed to fix the bad feelings, but there's nothing to fix. You're good. You've always been good. There's thousands of articles now in
2: the self-compassion research world that really validate this idea around being more kind and compassionate to yourself, allow you to make bigger and bolder changes in your life. So that with that acceptance really comes the change you're looking for.
1: Yes. And I think that's also just so tied to like being someone who's really a perfectionist or wanting to be so successful is we attach it to everything else we do with the food, with the body. We're like, we can't just relax. We can't just calm down. We got to keep going. Mm -hmm. You're good. Chill. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Take <you> a chip, pill.
2: <laughs> oh, it's been such a pleasure having you here and just getting deeper into your story. It's so amazing to see how you've really come out through this journey and to really embrace self love. and And you provide the inspiration. So, thank you, Kelly. How can all the recovery warriors stay in touch with you?
1: I love that even if you wanna stay in touch with me, you can follow me on Instagram, just go Kelly U On YouTube, you can just look up Kelly U. Um, Yeah, you can find me. I'm just the little Asian girl who stepped out of her shell.
0: Thank you, Kelly Uchima. Now, let's go over the three key takeaways from this conversation to help you recover strong. Key takeaway number one. Recovery is experiential. The core intention of Recover Strong is to help you take theoretical knowledge, put it into practice, and develop wise mastery. To go from theory to practice to mastery requires you to experientially step outside of your comfort zone into new ways of being and doing.
1: To truly pursue recovery, you do have to make changes. There's no way that you can keep interacting with Life the way that you are right now with food and your body the way you are, you do need to let go of it. I did have to stop working out for a while. I did have to practice going out to eat more and eating things I wasn't comfortable with. I had to make changes without physically in my real life doing different things. My mind cannot sync up to also making shifts. There was no way. And I really thought I could. I really thought I could still do all of the disorder types of behaviors but still find healing. No.
0: Breaking patterns is when real change happens, and this requires you to do things differently. We learn through experience. That is why healing is not a passive act. It takes effort and direct participation. So that was key takeaway number one. Recovery is experiential. Key takeaway number two. Don't just focus on food and therapy. Explore family dynamics in unhealed childhood wounds. Eating disorder behaviors are just the tip of the iceberg. Underneath, in that great big unconscious sea of yours, there are unmet needs and feelings that want and need to be faced. However, when you focus all your brain's energy on the eating disorder and its behaviors, it distracts you from seeing what's deeper. Kelly shared how her eating disorder served as a distraction that helped her avoid feelings that really terrified her. However, when she started facing these feelings she was avoiding, particularly when it came to issues in her family relationships, this helped her move forward in her healing. She shared that at first she didn't want to talk about her family in therapy and didn't understand the actual relevance and what it had to do with her issues with food. But after time in addressing the traumas and wounds with her family, Kelly and all of them moved forward together into deeper love and connection. This not only helped her with her eating disorder recovery, but also her family healing
1: the scariest thing about realizing like why you have these struggles or why you have these uh, disorders, anxiety, a lot of it stems from your childhood. A lot of it stems from when you were younger. And honestly, a lot of trauma from my childhood, like my relationship with my mom, my relationship with my dad, my relationship with food, with my sister, all these things that you find to be so unimportant and so irrelevant. You'll sit in your first therapy session and go, I don't want to talk about my dad. I want to talk about the food. And If that, I was like, that is irrelevant. I don't want to talk about that. The one thing you really don't want to talk about might just be the key to everything.
0: Sometimes one of the biggest keys to healing is behind the door you're most afraid to open. So that is key takeaway number two. Don't just focus on food and therapy. Explore family dynamics and unhealed childhood wounds. Finally, key takeaway number three. Food and exercise are not transactional. Diet culture teaches us that when we consume food, that it must be quote-unquote burned off or that we need to quote-unquote earn our food with exercise. While you do need food and energy to move, you don't need to move to have food. It's not a transaction. Kelly shared that she had to do a lot of unlearning around this and she struggled with fears around her body changing in size if she didn't burn off what she ate and that it was a constant fear in her mind. Having been programmed by the diet industry and fitness culture, it can take time to change this mindset. It's okay to desire recovery and still have negative feelings about your body at the same time. The key is to compassionately acknowledge this tension and let uncomfortable feelings come with you while you live your life and move forward with healing. Oftentimes when you let yourself have these feelings, it actually helps you move through them and starts to take away their power.
1: Your body, Is just a vessel for everything else inside of you like it's okay if it changes and in fact that means you're alive and moving and like life is fluid so what but it's really hard to believe that and be okay with that until you like practice it and it's still hard for me everyone struggles with body image even if you're the most self-loving human in the entire world I assume that there's a percentage that's always going to be concerned
0: body image is fluid and cannot be fixed And fixating on calories in and calories out is not the way to go if you want to find peace with food and body. Because as we explored in this final key takeaway, food is not something you earn and exercise is not something that you spend. Food and exercise are not transactional. So these are the three key takeaways from this conversation with Kelly Uchima.